If you'll take your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, and verse 1. And we'll read the first 11 verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, thank you so much for this great truth from your Son. And, and though we may be familiar with the parable, uh, help us not to allow the familiar to not move us, not to grip us afresh. And so we ask that your spirit would do that very thing, that you would encourage us in the truth about your son and our union with him, and that we would give evidence of such uh, the wonders of that union that would impact others for him. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as, as I mentioned a couple times already uh, in my prayer, as well as just the opening remarks, the text is a very familiar one. It is the parable of the vine and the branches. Um, if we sit down and had a conversation, uh, all of you, I'm sure, uh, could, could talk to me about this parable and you would know, understand uh, the main themes of it. And it's important that when we read parables that we do so with a careful and a very restricted interpretive lens. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, the general lesson of each parable is the main thing to be noticed. The minor details must not be tortured, strained, or pressed to an excess in order to extract a meaning from them. And I'm sure you've heard bad preaching. This takes parables and made it say things it should not have said. And the mistake in which uh, Ryle would say is that Christians have fallen by neglecting this rule is to keep the main thing the main thing when it comes to the understanding of parables. And in this parable tonight, the main teaching is that of union in Christ. That is the dominant theme. There's not, um, there are other things that we will learn from that, but they flow from the main theme. So when you study a parable, look for the main teaching uh, in that, and then we go from there. And so, as I mentioned, that the main thing about this parable is our union in Christ. And this is a, and it wasn't uh, something I planned, but it does complement nicely what we said this morning and what we talked about, our union in Christ. Uh, I do believe, uh, and I, I will not um, uh, grow weary of saying this, I think that one of the great deficiencies of the church of the Lord Jesus is we don't quite understand what it means to be one with God, what it want, be one in the union with Christ. And not just theologically and as a doctrine, but practically, you know, what does that look like every day in the Christian life? And I would say that if we understood it, it has profound impact on our daily Christian uh, living from what we'd say is the routine of life, which, you know, there's, it's okay to have routines in life. It's not okay to be routine in life. And there's a difference is that the Christian life is never dull, it's never routine, and a Christian should never suffer from boredom. Uh, there's just way too much going on in the Christian life uh, to even consider a boredom to be part of that. And the abiding in life, abiding in Christ's life in our union with Him, it ensures that that will not happen. So the main thing is a union in Christ, and so I've titled this uh, the abiding in Christ's life. Really, it's looking at our union. When it comes to our union in Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul would use that term, our oneness in Christ, to define what a Christian is. 
And one of the great examples of that, and you don't need to turn to it, it's in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he opens up his book, and Ephesians is the book on union in Christ, apart from Romans, Romans 6. But in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, you're going to see, and I'll, I'll make reference to it a few times, is the dominant theme in, Rome, uh, in, in Ephesians, the first couple chapters, is the doctrine of our union in Christ. And Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, now get this, who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he would mention two things. And now this is obviously, it's a, it's, it's a circular letter. It went to different, uh, different churches in uh, that locale, but it certainly went to the saints in the place, the literal place of Ephesus. And he says, this is what a Christian is. They are, Christians are saints in a specific locality, but they're in Christ. He would say that these Ephesians are in Ephesus. These Christians are in Ephesus, but they're also in Christ. I love what Ian Hamilton said about that. He quote, I quote him. He says, quote, what was, the, what was true of the believers in Ephesus is true for believers in every age. We have, by the grace of God, a heavenly zip code in Christ, but we also have an earthly zip code, Ephesus, New York, London, Singapore, Beijing. I would add North Kingstown, E.G., Coventry, Chapachet, Portsmouth, Narragansett, Warwick, and on and on and on. So that's important that we understand that there's two dimensions of us being Christians. Number one, that we are Christians in a locale, and we are in Christ in the larger uh, sphere of the, of the heavenlies lived out in the locale. John Murray has said on union with Christ, it is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And in John uh, chapter 15, 1 through 11, we're going to work our way through those verses under the headings, the abiding life in Christ, and then just look briefly at the results. What should we expect to be seeing in our lives as a result of our union in Christ or the abiding life in Christ. And the first thing that we, we will note here is that the abiding life in Christ, it requires three things. And the first one is this, is the recognition that we are in union with him. That we, are in rec that we recognize that we are in union with him. Now, I've already told you that I think it's a deficient teaching uh, in the church and if I was to ask you, uh, if you're in Christ, you would say yes. Uh, but then I would ask you the question, do you recognize that when life gets hard? Do you recognize your union in Christ and all that, uh, all that entails when, when life is botting out and you've got, uh, you got more month than you have uh, paycheck? To, what about that? Where's the practicality of this? So I have known in my own life, I, would, I know without a question I am one in Christ, but where is, uh, is the practicality of that lived out in my daily life? And that begins with the abiding in life, uh, in Christ's life. We have to recognize this union. We got to realize every day that, hey, I'm not alone and I'll never be alone because the resurrected Christ is within me. He also leads me, and thus I have every source of power to overcome fears, overcome anxieties, overcome all the various things in my life. And I'm not making it simple. These are really, these are, these are real challenges we face in our fallenness. But the, the, but the fact of the matter is, our union with Christ gives us all the resources we need in order to overcome all the various things that challenge us in life. So we have to recognize uh, this very truth that we as believers are in Christ. Turn over to John chapter 17 uh, in verse 20. It's just a couple chapters. John 17 uh, verse 20. Uh, Jesus winds down his high priestly prayer. And I want you to notice what the emphasis is on his prayer. Verse 20, 20, I do not ask for these only, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you also, they also may be in us. Now, Jesus is not pray, praying for a horizontal, compromising, ecumenical unity. That's not what he's praying for. You know, I've had people talk to me about, you know, well, we need to be in unity with other, other believers, and, and I, I absolutely, but there is a unity in truth. There's a unity in doctrine. There's not a unity that compromises truth. And so Jesus isn't saying, let's just love one another and be one. That's not what he's saying. 
He's making it very clear that the unity that we are to enjoy with one another is first and foremost, it's a unity in the Godhead. It's a unity in the Trinity, which provides us with uncompromising truth. He would go on and say, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Um, the church of Jesus Christ will never impact the, uh, the world if we water down or we compromise what unity truly means. It's when we stand different and people have even told me, well, Jim, you, we don't want to emphasize doctrine because doctrine divides. I would say with all due respect, doctrine unifies. It's just the opposite. Doctrine unifies. And so Jesus would go on to say in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. When the Lord prays, he prays that there would be a oneness, there would be a union, but it's always rooted in the Godhead. It's not rooted in just the horizontal. We don't just get along to get along. We get along and become one because Christ prays for this and he wants us to have this, but it's rooted in the Trinity. It's rooted in the Godhead. And we need the Lord to impress this upon us. We are not unloving because we say that our unity is first and foremost rooted in heaven. We are holding true to the biblical orthodoxy of Christianity if we maintain the truth that our unity is found in the Godhead. And so when Jesus prays this, really what he's praying for is what is unfolding in John chapter 15. There's this oneness that occurs by abiding in him. And as I said uh, earlier, uh, the, the book of Ephesians emphasizes this union. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 23, you don't, we won't read that. Um, you will go, I, I would encourage you to go through your Bible and circle uh, about our oneness in Christ found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 23. You are going to see Paul mention in that short period of space in chapter 1, nine times our union in Christ, either in Christ, in Jesus, in Him. If you would trace all of Paul's writings, all of Paul's writings about unity in Christ, our, our, our union in Christ, it will appear over 164 times. That's a lot of emphasis, which means it's very, very important. In the first nine verses of John 15, and you can go back there, John points us to the breadth, the depth of this union by the word abide, the word abide. Jesus would mention the word abide nine times in 16 verses. That's a lot of emphasis that he places on that. And they're in the imperative. Uh, he gives it to them as a command to abide. Now, it's important to def uh, that we look at our definitions as we did this morning, sanctification and eternal life. We look at the word abide. What does it mean to abide? That is one of those really nice spiritual sounding words. It has a nice, or just, just abide in Christ. I mean, I, I'm, you're so spiritual because you can see, but what does that really mean? What does that look like in a practical sense? Well, the word abide has rich meanings. It means to remain to stay, to stand fast, to dwell, and dwell is one of the dominant uh, meanings, to continue, to endure, and to be permanent. And the idea of, of dwell captures it best. It means to, uh, to reside in a place of permanency and comfortably. Comfortably. Like you're going to go home tonight and you're going to dwell in your home. And you're going to go home, and you're going to probably get into comfy clothes, and you're going to have your slippers on, and, and you're going to be all good. Now, what if I went home with you, uh, and I just walked in, didn't say a word, and I said, I just grabbed my slippers, and I just uh, uh, crawled up on your couch. How would you, that would be pretty weird, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty weird. Sometimes I wonder how Christians live, whether it would be uncomfortable for Christ to dwell within them. I wonder how he feels about the indwelling, because he says, dwell in me and I in you. Spurgeon said this, dwelling place may be translated refuge or abiding place and provides the thought that God is our abode, our home. There is a fullness and sweetness in the metaphor, for our home is dear to our hearts. Although it may be the humblest cottage or the tiniest of loft, and dearer still is our blessed God in whom we live and move and have our being. 
It is at home that we feel safe. We shut the world out and dwell in quiet security. So when we are with God, we fear no evil. He is our shelter and retreat, our abiding refuge. At home, we take our rest. It is there we find repose after the fatigue and toil of the day. And so our hearts find rest in God. When wearied with life's conflict, we return to him and our soul dwells or abides secure. Spurgeon paints this beautiful picture as only he can of the, of the abiding life is, is that God is our home and not just heaven. I mean, when you talk about, I can't wait to get to heaven, um, it's not the place that's going to make heaven heaven. It's the person who is there. It is the Christ in who we are abiding with. It is the beauty of the Lord Jesus that we will behold. And so when you find the end of the revelation, it's the very same thing that Jesus is exhorting us. He says, dwell in me as I dwell in you. Make me your home. Make, and make your heart my home. Make it so comfortable you know, that I welcome the indwelling uh, of your place. And when we get to the end of the revelation, what do we see? We see really the the Bible coming together as as a sandwich, bookends, I should say. In the very first, what do we find? We found God and Adam dwelling together. We found them in 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 the warm home of Eden. And now at the end, in the revelation, what do we find? Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Or the home of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will make their abode with them. He will abide with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I want to make a difference because there is a difference. And I mentioned this morning, being in Christ and abiding in Christ. In Christ is what Paul would say we are as Christians. Abiding in Christ is the experience, the healthy experience as a Christian. Is in Christ is our justification and it's possessional. Abiding in Christ is our sanctification and it's experiential. Is that we walk with him in an experiential um, um, relationship. We'll talk more about this communion, which is really what it is in a few moments. But A.W. Pink says to abide in Christ is to have a sustained conscious communion with him. Now notice what Pink says. He didn't say to abide in him is to have a sustained felt communion with him. He says to have a sustained conscious communion with him. That means you can go into the day tomorrow and you may be having the heavy burdens upon you and you may even have some spiritual clouds hanging over you, but you can walk with a conscious communion with your God. You can walk with the awareness or you can walk as we're recognizing the first point of the abiding life. You can walk recognizing this union with him. And God is most pleased when we trust him when it's most dark is that God is most pleased when we trust him when it's most dark. And so you're not always going to have a felt Christ. I wish that was true. I I wish we always had this felt assurance, this felt awareness of his presence. Uh, If we did, uh, then it would not require a life of faith. Uh, We are going to someday be in the felt presence of him where faith will give way to sight, never again to be faith exercised. That day's not today. And so what we do is we live the abiding life in Christ, recognizing our union in him, our union that the dwelling place of God is with us and that we are to dwell within him. And it is the conscious awareness of that truth. Remember the first thing that Paul says in Romans 6. He doesn't tell us to uh, start putting to death sin or just talk about conduct. He says, you must reckon, you must consider yourself. Those are accounting terms. And they're designed for us to think before we try to act. To think about our union in Christ. And so how does this, uh, these three aspects of this abiding, um, recognizing our union apply? Well, let's take a look at them. There's three of them. Jesus would mention abide in my person. He would say, my words abide in you and abide in my love. Verse 4 uh, through 7. Abide in me. It's the first time. This is going to appear one, two, three, four times uh, the personal nature of abiding in his person. 
four times in these verses. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, we could add that on there, but it's got a negative to it. He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Do you note that the very first thing that Jesus would teach us about the abiding in, uh, life is that it's personal. It's personal between you and him. It's all about him, but it includes us. But it always begins with him and it really ends with him, is that we look at this concept of abiding in him. It begins with understanding the personal relationship that you have as a Christian. And that's that conscious awareness that I don't walk with a moral ethic. I don't walk with a religion. I don't walk with a code of conduct. All those things occur, but it's an outflow of the fact is that I'll get up in the morning and I'm gonna look before I even get out of bed, I'm gonna look upward and say, good morning, Lord, thank you for the night. And you're going to start your day by realizing that there is, a, there is a very real relationship that occurs. Now, I'm not going to wake up in the morning, and most times I don't wake up with this, with jumping like I'm in a Mount of Transfiguration into my day, and I'm, it's like, whoopee, happy in Jesus all the day. That doesn't happen. But I certainly can start my day by recognizing the union that I have with him as a result of faith and what he's done in my life, and you can too. And so even before you uh, hit the deck of running, I would say start out by looking upward and say, Father, thank you. Thank you for a new day. Thank you for a new day that I can walk in the conscious awareness of my union in your son. It's personal. And if you maintain that type of relationship, that type of awareness of relationship, then you know what you're going to find yourself doing? You're going to find yourself abiding in his person. You're going to find him dwelling within you, you dwelling with him. And Galatians 2.20 is going to unfold in your life every day. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me or dwells within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And friends, this is how you do spiritual warfare against sin. If you're going to defeat any sin in your life, it's on the basis of your union in Christ. There, there's no strength in of yourself. Uh, some of you are extremely disciplined and you're structured, uh, but your personal resolve is not going to defeat any sin pattern in your life. And some of you may have tried to do that. Uh, I have. I've resolved that I'm just not going to give in to this or I'm not going to have this. And it seems like the more that I resolve on the very thing I'm not going to do is the very thing that I do. And so be very careful then that you don't try to do battle against something that has already been slain by your union in Christ. Is it he's already, by virtue of his death, you know, for sin, you identify with him so that you can die to sin. And so the abiding life begins when, with his person, realizing the consciousness of what has happened in your union with him, death and resurrection. But now look at verse 7. So we, we recognize first and foremost that the abiding in life, uh, in Christ's life, is recognizing our union in him, our union. First, it's abiding in his person. Keep it relational. Learn to talk to him throughout the day. And don't learn to talk to him just by crying out, help, I need something. You know, walk with him and share your day with him. Share, share your, your days with him. Make it a point to, to live in a spirit of thanksgiving in a spirit of, of praise, you'll find your days will go so much different. Uh, you'll be spiritually oriented towards the heavenly and eternal things uh, when you live in a spirit of thanksgiving and a spirit of walking and talking with him uh, who is your, your person you're abiding in. Secondly, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, there's a, little, there's a little change of words here. Jesus says, abide in me. And then further down, he's going to say, abide in my love. But now it's shifted. He says, my words abide in you. Jesus now identifies the means of his abiding in us. And the means that he abides in us is not by some weird experience. He abides in us by the word, by the word taking root deep inside of us, by his word renewing our mind, by his word even dwelling within us or taking its, its home within us. Paul would say this, 
In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the same word. Abide in me, your words abide, my words abide in you. Let the word of Christ abide in you. Now remember the definition of abide or to dwell. It's to, it's to take up a permanent residency in a position of being comfortable. So ask yourself the question even right now. Is the word of God being placed within my heart in such a way that it finds its comfortable abode in my mind and in my heart? So much so that you're not resisting the conviction that may come, but that you are comfortably obeying his precepts out of delight. And how many times have you been tempted and the temptation has been so strong is that it's louder than the whisper of the spirit and you don't hear the word as you, as you play with the temptation and then the temptation quiets it altogether. If the word of Christ is dwelling or taking its boat in us comfortably, that means we're quick to respond to it, his promptings, the spirit's promptings to the word. You should uh, read Psalm 119. You know it's an exposition of the Bible. 16 times in Psalm 119, the psalmist proclaims his love for the word. His love for the word. Psalm 119, I'll give you two examples. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. There was a young lady. She once was reading a book and she put it down after she had finished it with a remark that went like this. That was the dullest story I have ever read. In the course of time, she became engaged to a young man. And one night she said to him, I have a book in my library whose author's name and even initials are precisely the same as yours. Isn't that a singular coincidence? He said, I do not think so. And she said, well, why not? And he responds to her and saying, for the simple reason that I wrote the book. That night after he left, the young lady got the book, set up until 2 o'clock in the morning, reading the book again and again and again. And she whispered to herself, this is the most interesting story I have ever read. What was the difference? The once dull book was now fascinating and gripped her because she knew and loved the author. When you read your Bible, when Jesus says, my words abide in you, you are not reading your Bible just so that you can gain knowledge. And you're not reading your Bible just so you can communicate truth to someone else. You are reading your Bible so that you will behold the Lord. You are reading your Bible so that you will get to know the glorious God of this Bible. And when Jesus says, abide in my person first, and then he says, let my words dwell within you comfortably, he's pointing us that in order to abide in me, my words have to abide in you. And my words, if you're rightly reading them, will always point to the splendor of who I am. And that, my friends, is the Christian life. That is the abiding in, uh, in Christ's life, is that his word so captivates us that when we pick up our Bibles, we're asking, Lord, show me yourself. Show me yourself that I might see the wonder, the beauty, the splendor, the majesty, the holiness of who you are and the tender mercies that you shower upon me. If you just read your Bible just to read your Bible, don't be surprised that there's no transformation. Don't be surprised that there's no change. And if you're just reading your Bible, just to read your Bible, don't be surprised when you're inconsistent. Is it this, this, this girl, this young lady, when she knew who wrote that book, I chuckled at the story. I read that story. I was thinking, yep, yep. Is it she got it? That could have been just one constant sentence repeated for 150 pages, and she still would have loved it because it was the person who she loved. And you know what? We could have a book full of John 3, 16. And that's all we got. But it would show us who God is. 
So then if we want to understand the, the whole of the Christian life, uh, this abiding in Christ's life, we need to recognize our union with him. It's our union in his person. It's our union in his word that points to his person. Now, I, I don't want to try to paint this as some ide- idealistic thing. Is that there are going to be times that you read your Bible and you're going to get up and you say, well, what did I read? Yeah. You're going to be times that you're going to read your Bible and it's going to be dull. And it's not going to, you're, you're going to say, huh? Or you're reading your Bible and you're already planning out the next 15 things you got to do while you're reading your Bible. Ever do that? I mean, some of my best planning occur when I'm, I'm reading and praying, it seems like it. But let me, let me encourage you on this. Press through that. And still read. And still read. And still read. Because you are without a doubt, and I borrow some of this from Paul Washer, but I got it from John Bunyan too, is that you are, the more that you read, and you may not realize it, but you are building up a reservoir of truth in your mind and in your heart. And you may not get something out of it. It may jump, not jump off the page, and you're writing pages in your, in your journal just how much you discovered. You may not get that every day. There'll be some days that you're going to get that and you're going to probably shout hallelujah, what a word. You're going to get that. But there's going to be far more days that you're just got to plug along through this. But that's where you're really going to measure some, some things about yourself. And the more that you press through with his words abiding in you, you are building up this reservoir of truth. And the Holy Spirit has been, we've been told the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16 that Jesus tells his disciple that the Holy Spirit will bring the truth back to you that I have spoken. Speaking to disciples, same thing for us. You, can, you read your Bible through, and I encourage you, read your Bible through every year. It takes about 20 minutes. Standard reading. 20 minutes. Read through your Bible every year. You do that year in, year out, and you are going to find out time after time that the Lord is going to bring that word that you planted in your heart and mind back to you at certain times and certain opportunities that you never memorized those verses. He brought him back because you put his word abiding within you. So we abide in his person. His words abide in us. Now look at verse 9. There's now the, the recognition of our union. Not only abiding in his person, his words abiding in us, but abiding in his love. Abiding in his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You could meditate on that for so long. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's one of the things that I need in my own life, and and forgive the personal uh, illustration, but I think a lot of Christians need this. I need to really experience a deeper awareness of God's love for me. And Paul would pray that for the Ephesians. He would pray that we might know the love of Christ, the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of that. I think every Christian needs to know more and more of the love of God to them personally in their life. Because the way that you love God is because you're first loved. And the more that you experience his love and what Jesus, why would Jesus say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you? He gives that right before the command, abide in my love. Why would he say that? Because he knows that we struggle with this concept of being loved by God because we see how unlovable we really are. And we are certainly unlovable beings. Now, none of you, but we are unlovable beings. Look at our sin. Look what we've done. Look at at all the, the, the past. Look at even, maybe even today, some of our thought life. Is that we are not the most lovable of beings. And so Jesus would remind us before he gives the command to abide in my love, he would say, before I give you the command, I want you to know how much you're loved. And this is so critical for Christian, healthy Christian living. In John 17, 26, he even prays this. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
Here again, we have a wonderful verse 26 of John 17 of this union in his person, this Trinitarian unity, and it's bathed in the love of God towards us. And when we learn to get that, then we learn the abiding in his love aspect of our union. And we began to understand Paul, what drove Paul, what controlled Paul. And what controlled Paul? 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. That's one of those verses it's easy to quote too. Just be controlled by the love of Christ. It does sound really good. And that certainly is what is to be the Christian life. But how would I know? Like I tried to, 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 to encourage you this morning with, how would I know if I have eternal life? I gave you six uh, very quick points, Barrett, uh, on, the, uh, on, on what eternal life looks like in, in the Christian life. But how would I know if I'm under the control of Christ's love, which means that I'm abiding in his love? How would I know that? What would be some evidence in my life that I am under the control of Christ's love and that his word is abiding in me and thus, I am abiding in his person. Three quick things. Number one, that God's will and his priorities will become increasingly ours. If I'm under the control of Christ's love, then God's will and his priorities will become increasingly ours. What drove the Lord Jesus, even from a little boy, all through life on earth? It was his father's will. And he says, as the fathers loved me, so have I loved you. As I have loved the Father, so I love you. And so if we want to know if we're under the control of Christ's love, which is really the definition of the practical Christian life, number one, God's will and his priorities will become increasingly ours. And what is his will for us? Well, we know it's holiness, but let me simplify that in two things. Is God's will and his priorities, number one, to know him and to do the work of the gospel. Those are the two highest of priorities of the Christian, to know him. Because to know him is to love him, and to love him is to adore him, and to adore him is to worship him, and to worship him is to want to be with him, and to want to be with him is to become like him. A second uh, indication that I am under the control of Christ's love, and thus abiding in his love, is that self-interest are being replaced by the interests of others is I find for, far more and more that I'm concentrating more on the interests of others than my own interest. And the reason why that is one of the strongest evidence of being under the control of Christ's love is because that is not ours by nature. Me caring more about others than the guy I see in the mirror every more is not by nature. By nature, I care more about the guy in the mirror than I do anybody else. So it takes something powerful beyond me to put others' interests ahead of my own. And that power is the power of Christ's love, the power of the gospel. And the third indication would be sacrificial service to others as a pattern of life. Not that I sign up for a ministry for an X number of weeks, but that I sign up for a life of sacrificial service for others. That's a strong indication of under the control of Christ's love. And none of these are, are able to be accomplished by the strength of yourself. And that leads to the second aspect of the abiding in Christ's life. Not only then do we recognize our union, but we exercise our dependence on Christ. Look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now notice this, for apart from me, you can do something. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to really believe that. I mean, really believe that. I mean, I believe it, but do I really believe it? There's a difference. And you'll find, you'll find this tested. You'll find this extremely tested. In fact, is the test will be so severe is that God is going to get us to learn this lesson. Uh, he loves us so much is you're going to learn this lesson. You're going to be taken to the end of your rope in many, many situations. You're going to be taken to the point is where you have nowhere else to go but to him. But to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 8, For we not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, 
for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Notice what Paul says, but that was to make us rely. God loves us so much that he's going to make us. He's going to make us understand that you can do nothing without my son. And you say, well, why is that so? Because when you do something for the son, because you can't do nothing without the son, guess who gets all the glory? If you can do some, th- some things and just kind of ask the son to come alongside and help you a little bit, then you're going to want to share some of that glory. You're going to want a little real recognition for what you accomplished. But if you realize you can't do nothing without him, and he's placed you in the impossible role as being a godly wife or a godly husband or a godly mom or a godly dad or a godly person in the marketplace or a Christian called to teach the word to children or to teach the word to God's people or whatever the venue of spiritual service is. When God calls you to that and you have this overwhelming sense of inadequacies, that's exactly where he wants you to be. Because then when he empowers you to fulfill all those roles, you're going to be able to humbly and sincerely say, it wasn't I, but it was him. And not the false piety that says, well, it wasn't I, it was all him, but really, it was some of me. He's going to show us that the abiding in Christ's life is a recognition of our union, and it's also an exercising of our dependence upon him. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to go through that because we, we, don't like, we don't like the thought is that we are totally helpless. Nor do we like the thought that we are totally in control of nothing or no one. That's one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is that, um, is that I don't control anything or anyone. And that's not a good place to be for some of you people that like to have control. And there are one, there's about 25 of you is that we all want to control something, or if not, we don't want to change something that we don't like, or worse yet, we want to change someone we don't like. And the Lord is going to teach us, without me, you can do nothing. So that's part of the abiding in life Christ, is that we exercise dependency upon him. And then verse 10, verse 10. The abiding in Christ's life includes maintaining communion with him. Now, it's not, the, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fellowship. Notice in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you know in all three of these areas that Jesus is teaching us about abiding? He really is showing us the whole of the Christian life. He's showing us himself. He's showing us his word. And he's showing us love. That's the Christian life. A Christ-centered, word-based life of love. That's the whole of the Christian life unfolded in John chapter 15. And if we're going to maintain this abiding, and that's what it is. It's a, it's, those are imperatives that are continual, present tense continual. Then we have to maintain communion with him. And what does that mean? Maintaining fellowship with him. Now, as I mentioned about the word abide, it means to be comfortable. You're not going to be comfortable if, if Joy and I just show up at your door at 9 o'clock tonight and say, hey, we're here. Hey, thanks. Just, hey, we'll turn the TV off and we're done. Just go to bed. You're not going to be comfortable with any of that. But it's okay if I go home to my place and uh, I said, Joy, just go to bed. I'm going to stay up for a little bit and read or whatever. It's my place. In order for Christ to abide in us, to have communion with him, we have got to let, make sure that our lives, for lack of a better term, are lived in a comfortable way that he welcomes to be in it. And that means our communion with him is contingent upon one thing, and that is our obedience. Our obedience. Notice in verse 10 what he says, if you keep my commandments, it's conditional. I'm not saying you, you, you don't obey to earn God's favor, but you obey because you have God's favor and you want to commune with him. John 14, 21, this is a powerful verse. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
That is such an important verse on fellowship with God. He says, if you keep my commandments, you love me. And if you love me, I will manifest myself to him. The word manifest means to reveal. This isn't salvation. This is the reality of Christ in your life. And when Jesus Christ is abiding in you and you in him, and his love is abiding in you and you in his love, and his word is renewing your mind and directing your steps, do you know what happens in the presence of God? Walking in a conscious, not felt communion with God, it banishes your fears, it builds confidence, and it provides assurance. Those three are all always present when Christ manifests himself to his people. He says, fear not, and fear goes away. He says, you know, that speak the word with boldness. The book of Acts, it's what they did because of the presence of Christ. And there's nothing more assuring than have Jesus open up his word to you and say, I am your salvation. Well, as quickly, um, we're almost out of time. Uh, I got about 30 minutes more. Um, Let's finish this up. The results of the abiding in Christ's life. What are we supposed to take away from this? Well, as you go through and study the text and you see the word abide, pay attention to the words fruit. Fruit. What are the results if I'm abiding in this person? His love's abiding in me. His word is renewing me and directing me. I will be a fruit bearer. I'm only going to mention this and then uh, and, and just in a passing comment. And the one thing I want you to see about this fruit is first what it isn't. It's not you being a soul winner. Uh, I've had people tell me that. Well, the fruit of another Christian is another Christian. I said, I can't make Christians. Neither can you. So it's not that. It's the character of Christ. It's becoming more and more like him. It's becoming more and more shaped into his image. Now look at verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear, bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now notice what he says here. Bears fruit. And then look at the end of verse 2. More fruit. And then go down to verse 5. Bears much fruit. And then verse 8, much fruit. So what does the Lord teach us about the abiding in himself and his love and his word abiding in us life? It is a progressive growth in the image of him. And look back in your own Christian life. When you first became a Christian, how much was you like Jesus? Not a whole lot. But what about as time went by? Did you see more and more of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? But then as you went further on, did you see much more of that? Now, we all are in different paces. I get that. We all are in different paces. But this will be true of every Christian. There will be the progression in Christ's likeness. And that's the fruit that he's talking about. And so you can use that as a, as a gauge on whether or not uh, the abiding life is defining your experience with him. But there's one more, and this is where we'll close. Verse 11 there's something else that he says is the, in the fruit of the abiding Christian. And that is joy. Joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now notice what he says. These things I have spoken to you. What did he just say? The things that we've just been talking about. He's talking about the abiding life. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. In, verse, uh, in chapter 16, verse 20 and 24, he would mention joy again. He says, your sorrow we've turned into joy, and that your joy may be full. But then in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 13, he says, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Three quick things about the joy of the Lord. Number one is personal. He says, my joy will be your joy. And that points us back to the abiding in him life. It's personal. Secondly, it's powerful. The joy of the Lord is powerful. It's not some emotion. It could contain emotion. It's the joy. I, I read, I read uh, a definition of joy. It is a steady confidence in the sovereignty of God that brings the heart and mind to a settled state of rest. 
That's pretty good. You know, now I don't know if it's complete because I believe joy is like the peace that passes all understanding. You know when you have it, you can't define it, but you know when you have it and you also know when you don't. And so this joy then is personal. It's powerful. It's powerful in the sense of what we read in Nehemiah 8.10. The scripture says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's strength comes in his joy. And you've experienced that, the, the joy that just sustains you, that empowers you. And how about the joy that when you're actually sharing Christ with someone and the joy that occurs when someone repents, like the angels rejoicing over sinners that repent. You know what, you know what a dead church or a church that needs revived, you know what it means that will revive that church? Get a whole bunch of new converts. Just get a whole bunch of new birth in there. New, new baby Christians that are hungering for, for, for the things of the Lord. Is that the heavens are rejoicing over that. How much more will the church rejoice when we see these new babies all around us? And uh, how exciting that would be to have a spiritual nursery just full of whining little spiritual babies that all they want is the milk of the word. Here's a final thing. The joy of the Lord as a result of our abiding, it's not only personal, it's not only powerful, but it's influential. It's influential. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verse 6, and Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He would say that the word and joy, both coming from the Holy Spirit, in their affliction has caused great influence in the, in the uh, lives of others. Notice what he says as a result of the received word and the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became examples to all believers in Macedonia and Archaea. And not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone everywhere. And that they are testifying how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's what joy does for you. Joy empowers influential Christian living. And I, I would argue that joy is one of the most effective means of evangelism. Because it's not fabricated by man. And as God brings such joy into our hearts... We exhibit Christ and people ask us, why are you like you are? Just like Peter said they would. So the abiding in life, abiding in Christ's life, think on these things, study these things, and may God help us to abide more in his person, his word in us, and in his love, that ultimately we would know the power of his joy, the influence of his joy, and be shaped into the image of him who is our joy. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for this good word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for giving us your son, the commands to abide in his person, to abide in his love and have his words abide in us. May that be so. May we know more and more what this means, how to live this out every day with a conscious awareness of your presence, of our union with Christ. And that we'll walk in a power of, of, of you that allows us to influence others for him. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. We have one more song. And then we'll have the benediction.